here. So good to be with you all this afternoon uh, to worship with you. I have heard about this church for months now through your pastor James, who's been a good friend over the few years we've known each other. And it's been a, a joy to see how the Lord has brought this into fruition through a pandemic, through meeting temporarily in another space, right, to coming here, to, to gathering at a different time, 2.30 in the afternoon. And while I'm over there coming in, like nodding off and tired, I come in and y'all like shouting and clapping and like ready to praise the Lord. And so uh, we trust that it'll be a good time as we open up God's word and we hear from him this afternoon. Would you join me in a brief word of prayer? And I hate these mics. I always do this. So if these things are like fighting me all day, you know why. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the privilege it is to have your word written in a language we can understand. Lord, with our own copies of it. We, we understand that so many believers for centuries have not had that privilege. And so, Lord, help us to take advantage of it, to cherish it. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would speak to us through your word even now. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. They called her Moses. Not because she looked like him, but because she acted like him. Having secured her own freedom, Harriet Tubman made more than a dozen trips back to the South, escorting dozens, perhaps hundreds of slaves to freedom without losing a single passenger. Frederick Douglass commented about her, I know of no one who has so willingly encountered more perils and hardships to serve our enslaved people. Yet it wasn't desire for recognition that motivated Harriet. The source of her strength lie in her faith in God, whom she trusted as a deliverer and a protector of the weak. Her faith, coupled with her love for people, led her on those dangerous journeys, leading people to experience the freedom that she knew existed, but they only hoped for. Many were afraid and some wanted to turn back, but Harriet wouldn't let them. Follow me, she insisted, on to freedom. Harriet Tubman's life is a small example of what love looks like in action. Giving your own life to secure the freedom of others. Thinking of the well-being of others over and above your own. Leading the way for them to a better life and telling them to follow behind you. Her life was a model of our saviors who gave his life to securing the freedom of others, who cared for people enough to come for them and call on them to follow him, to follow his words, to follow his example, to follow his love for God and compassion for people. This afternoon, we want to consider what it looks like to follow Jesus, to be his disciples and learn from him. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me or scroll to, with me to Matthew chapter 9? Matthew chapter 9, and this afternoon we'll look at verses 9 through 13. Matthew 9, 9 through 13. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. 
And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. In this passage, we get a firsthand account of the author of this book, Matthew's conversion. His beginning to follow Jesus. And here's what I think Matthew means to highlight in recounting this story. The main point of this passage. Jesus calls the most despised sinners to leave their sin and cleave to him and to invite others to do the same. Jesus invites the most despised sinners to leave their sin and cleave to him and to call or invite others to do the same. So while this story involves Matthew, it's really about Jesus, as the entire book of Matthew is, as the entire Bible is. We want to stare at Jesus this afternoon. And as we look at him in this passage, we want to note something of Jesus's four-part discipleship plan. And those four parts will serve as the kind of four points of the sermon. Number one, Jesus pursues unlikely candidates. We see that in kind of verse 9a. Number two, Jesus picks a simple curriculum. We see that at the latter half of verse 9. Number three, Jesus prioritizes time with sinners. We see that in verses 10 and 11. And number four, Jesus promotes theological education. We see that in verses 11 through 12. Number one, Jesus pursues unlikely candidates. Number two, Jesus picks a simple curriculum. Number three, Jesus prioritizes time with sinners. And number four, Jesus promotes theological education. Number one, Jesus pursues unlikely candidates. Look at verse nine again. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. As we come to this passage, we see Jesus is on the move again. He passes on from the house where he previously healed a man to now find another person in need. It's interesting when you think of all the good ministry Jesus left behind. If you just read through the Gospels, you see that everywhere Jesus went, he generally bore fruit. People were consistently helped by his ministry. In the passage before this one, he, he brought both physical and spiritual healing to a paralytic. In the passage before that, over in the region of the Gadarenes, he healed two demon-possessed men. In the passage before that, he healed all the sick and the lame that people brought to him. In the passage before that, he healed a centurion's servant. 
You get the sense that if Jesus would have stayed in one place, he would have never run out of good things to do for people. And yet, he spread out. His time on earth was limited, and he had many people to see, many people to save, and many people who needed him. And so he comes here in this passage and finds Matthew. But at first glance, he doesn't seem like someone in need as someone lacking something. I mean, if you look up at the the previous passage, at the paralytic in verses one through eight, obviously he has needs. The imagery used to describe him and the situation he was in all but cry out, this man needs help. But notice here how strikingly different the picture of Matthew is. Wherein in the previous passage of verse two, the paralytic was lying on his bed Here in verse 9, we find Matthew sitting up at the tax booth. Where the paralytic needed his friend's help to get him to Jesus, here Matthew seems self-sufficient. He got a job, a good-paying government job, with a pension, good benefits, and paid vacation leave. Life is sweet. He's not looking for Jesus, and yet Jesus is looking for him. We read that Jesus passed by and saw Matthew. Now, suppose that passing the crowd and the busy streets of Capernaum, that Jesus saw many people out and about. But in an intentional way, he saw Matthew. He set his eyes on him. And he sees him. He finds him at his place of work, sitting or conducting business at the tax booth. And this this mic is going to give me the... The death of me today. He finds Matthew conducting business at the tax booth. Now, tax people generally get a bad rap in every society, don't they? I mean, you meet someone who works for the IRS and you just slowly start to back away from the conversation, keeping your lips closed in case somehow you find out that you just got a little too much back on that tax return or stimulus check. Or maybe you curse the entire tax system. When you get your paycheck or your W-2 and you see how much you could have made versus how much you actually brought home after taxes. No, nobody likes tax people. But in first century Palestine, the feeling among Jews towards tax collectors went beyond dislike. They despised them. For one, tax collectors who were themselves Jews gathered taxes for the Romans those who'd conquered the Jews and were now occupying their land. Anyone taking taxes for the enemy would themselves be considered enemies. The worst kind of enemies, traitors, turning their backs on their own people. But more and perhaps worse, many tax collectors were extortioners. They charged more than was required and they kept the change. I mean, to offend people's patriotism was bad enough. But you start tapping into people's pockets and you really see what rage looks like. And so tax collectors were hated, despised in society, and seemingly for good reason. So when Matthew, when Jesus sees Matthew sitting at the tax booth, at the very place where he carried out the transactions that ripped off people and rebelled against God, who requires just transactions, he has something to say to him. 
You see that there in the text. Verse 9 says, he saw and he said. I worked for a number of years at Metro, and that was one of our main safety messages. If you see something, say something. That's what we do when we see something wrong, don't we? We say something about it. Now, what is it that we expect Jesus to say to Matthew? I condemn you to hell, you wicked, wicked man. You lowlife of the earth. You scumbag who defrauds his own people and disgraces God. That's certainly what the Jews would have done. What they would have preferred. That's perhaps how they responded to Matthew when they saw him perhaps mumbling under their breath as they pay their taxes. And yet, Jesus comes with a different saying. Instead of rebuke or reprimand, he reaches out with an offer of repentance, forgiveness, a new way of life. Hey, Matthew, yes, you, come follow me. No, 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 no. Not him, Jesus. Not him. It's okay for you to show compassion and offer new life to paralyzed people and people deeply in need who don't have much else. But not this rascal. You know how much he's taken from me? How much pain he's caused me? My family and my finances and my future are hurting because of this man. You can save anybody but not fill in the blank. Who's that for you? Who is it that's caused you so much pain and hurt that you believe is beyond God's grace? An absent parent? A distant relative? An ex-spouse? A former friend? Who is it that you believe is the worst of sinners and deserves nothing but God's wrath? Well, it's you. It's me. It's Matthew. And yet Jesus comes and calls us to himself that he might magnify his grace over against our ungodliness. We just think about it. Grace that is greater than all our sin. Friend, if you're here this afternoon and your life is an absolute wreck, perhaps you're asking yourself, will Jesus accept me? The answer here is unequivocally yes. Jesus pursues unlikely candidates. That's one part of Jesus' discipleship plan. The second is this. Jesus picks a simple curriculum. Point number two, Jesus picks a simple curriculum. You know, being a Christian isn't all that elaborate. It's not some complicated and confusing plan. I mean, Jesus doesn't save people, pursue people, call people to himself, and then give them a a set of Ikea-like instructions to live by. Diagrams and few words, right? He doesn't cause you to figure it out for yourself. No, Jesus' grand plan for his people can be summed up in those two words to Matthew towards the end of verse 9. Follow me. 
That's the plan God has always had for his people. When God created Adam and Eve and put them in the Garden of Eden, he gave them his word to follow, to listen to, that they might live and not die. You can eat of all the fruit of every tree in the garden, but of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, lest you die. But his people disobeyed his commands, and they ate. Eve first, and she gave to Adam, and he ate. And when God came to Adam, he charged him, because you have listened to your wife, instead of following me and my commands, cursed is the ground because of you. God called Abram to leave his land and his kindred, everything that he knew, and to go to a place that he would show him. He didn't tell him all the details or the exact circumstances of the journey. He didn't tell him all that he could expect. He simply told him, follow me. God called Moses from a burning bush and told him to follow me back into Egypt and bring my people out. God brought the children of Israel out of Egypt and he led them through the Red Sea on dry land. And for 40 years of wilderness wanderings, he guided them, literally telling them to follow me as he led them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. On Mount Sinai, God gave his people laws to obey. He wrote his law on stone tablets to give to his people that they might follow his instructions and distinctly live his way. In Deuteronomy, on the brink of entering into the promised land, God gave Israel a second set of instructions and told them, if you will follow me and not the ways of the land, I will bless you and keep you and prosper you. God took David from the pasture, from following after the sheep to following him all the way to the throne of Israel. And he told Solomon, his son, follow me as David, your father, did. So, so when we get to, to passages like this here, to Jesus' command to follow me, we're not coming to some different message. We're not finding some cutting-edge philosophy of ministry. No, Jesus the Son of God, God in the flesh, is calling Matthew and by extension us to do what God has always called his people to do. Follow me. Friends, you see why we can't unhitch our Old Testaments from our New Testaments? Because then we'd miss the one plan of God for the one people of God to do one thing. Follow him. It's a simple command, but it's not an easy one. It costs to follow Jesus. Here we see Jesus command Matthew to follow me, and Matthew immediately leaves the tax booth and follows him. Friends, following Jesus always involves forsaking something, leaving something behind. It will always involve leaving your sin behind. You cannot cling to your sin and come to Christ. I think we see that here in this passage. I mean, I think we could easily read this passage and come away with the notion that, that following Jesus means leaving your job behind. That's sometimes true. Well, we see that when Jesus earlier calls Peter and Andrew 
James and John and, and cause them to leave their fishing jobs and to follow him. But later in the Gospels, we see that, that they go back to that work, at least for a short moment of time. But here, Jesus calls Matthew to leave not just a job, but to leave everything that's manifested in that job, all that's fed and nurtured in that line of work, to leave his old way of life, his old way of thinking, his old way of relating to people, to leave his sin and to follow him. You notice how different this command is to follow Jesus from the messaging we're being pumped into us by the world constantly? I mean, we're constantly being told to follow our hearts, to follow our dreams, to follow our passions, to follow down a certain lucrative career path. You are the master of your own destiny. We're all tempted to embrace that kind of mindset. You know, I think the way some of us think of Christianity is that we just add Jesus to our lives. And that way, we, we differ very little from a Hindu. Happy to have yet another God. And so we call ourselves Christians and we just kind of put Jesus on the side. Tell him to come, come alongside of us while we figure life out. What college we'll go to. What person will date? What job will pursue? Friends, that's something. But we can't call it Christianity. The only biblical picture of Christianity is Christ in front and us chained behind. The whole Christian life is a call to die to some false sense of auto autonomy, which we were never created for, and to follow the one whom we were created for, the Lord. That's how the Bible speaks of Christianity, as chaining you, locking you to Jesus. You are not your own, but were bought with a price. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. You are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Romans 1, 6. If that kind of language bothers you, it might be because we have a false notion that at some point we were free agents, that we had free reign. The Apostle Paul corrects that kind of thinking in Ephesians chapter 2, that apart from Christ, we're all following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. The reality is we've all got a chain on us. The only question is who's on the other end of it? If it's Satan and sin, it will lead us to a certain and eternal death. But if it's Jesus, the Son of God, he will lead us to a certain and eternal life. For Matthew to leave a lucrative career to follow Jesus was an acknowledgement that there was something better than money then status, Jesus. And he counted the cost and concluded that Christ was better than what he had. So when Jesus called, he got up and immediately followed him. What does following Jesus look like for you? What does it look like for you this afternoon? Well, if you've never committed your life to him, then today he's calling you to follow him 
to turn away from your sin, from your rebellion against the God who you created for, and instead use your desires and your attention and your agenda to give it totally to the Lord, to turn to Jesus Christ, God's only son who came to earth and who did what you and I failed to do, perfectly follow God's commands. Jesus lived the life that you and I should have lived. And then he laid down his life and he picked up a cross and he died the death that you and I definitely deserve to die. But just as surely as Matthew got up from that tax booth, Jesus Christ got up from the grave, showing that his death for our sins was sufficient payment for all of our transgressions. He wiped us clean. He satisfied all of God's wrath against sinners so that everyone who trusts in him will be saved, will have a joyous and complete and a fulfilling life that nothing in this world can give you. Jesus ascended into heaven, and now he calls all men and women everywhere, including in Montgomery County on a Sunday afternoon, to come follow me. That you might have eternal life. Friend, if you've want to know more about what that looks like, talk to me after service, talk to someone around you. There's no greater joy than walking behind the Lord. We want to help you do that this afternoon. Beyond that, following Jesus just has a myriad of of other applications, though, doesn't it? I mean, part of following Jesus, if you're a child, right? And by child, I don't necessarily just mean age. If you're still living under your mom and daddy's roof, right, then you're following Jesus means following what your parents say in the house, right? Right? Understanding that their authority is a good gift from God. And that part of what following Jesus looks like for you is following those that Jesus has put over you. If you're employed, following Jesus might mean leaving your current job. It may mean that. Perhaps because the very nature of the work is corrupt. Or maybe your boss is asking you to do something that's unethical. Or following Jesus may mean going to find a new job in a new city to help support new gospel work or strengthen existing gospel work. Perhaps some of you have already done that. You've moved to this area. You've left behind churches and family and friends and old connections and even old jobs to come help sustain, strengthen, set up this local Baptist church. That's a good thing. That's a good usage of your time. But I hope you know that following Jesus is this act. More than following some leaders or an organization, I hope you understand that leaving things behind to come here is a following after Christ more than anything else. For many of you, following Jesus may mean staying here long term for decades. I know that sounds crazy in the D.C. area, staying here for decades to support gospel work in this church and in this community and mobilizing others to go out. That might mean forsaking the house and yard of your dreams. I mean, who can afford it in the D.C. area? It might mean embracing the heavy traffic and the hectic pace of life in order to herald Jesus Christ in Rockville, in Montgomery County, right, in the D.C. area. Friends, in every area of life, Jesus is calling all of us to this basic but incredibly costly work to follow me. Jesus picks a simple curriculum. 
The third part of Jesus' discipleship plan, Jesus prioritizes time with sinners. Jesus prioritizes time with sinners. Look there with me at verses uh, 10 and 11. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? It's striking, isn't it? To see the change of scenery between verses 9 and 10. I mean, you'd expect Jesus to call sinful Matthew from that wicked tax booth in verse 9. And then verse 10 to show them up in the holy temple together. And Jesus walking him through an inductive Bible study. Christianity explained or something. Or, or showing him the proper way to pray. Instead, we find Jesus chilling at Matthew's dinner table. I think one of the things it shows us is that a lot of discipleship happens in informal settings. Jesus is at Matthew's house. Luke's account of this story fills in that detail for us. And Matthew has invited his friends over, tax collectors and sinners, which is stunning. I mean, it's absolutely stunning. Jesus has called Matthew to leave his work, but not his co-workers. No, bring them to me that they too might find freedom in following me. You know, it's it's interesting that so many of us become Christians and immediately we leave everything of our old lives behind. We don't have any contact anymore with any of our old friends or acquaintances who share our old ways. But saints, there's no place that you can set your feet on this planet in this sinful world where you'll be totally away from sinners. That's not Jesus' plan. He does not save us and send us immediately to heaven. No, he saves us and he leaves us in this dark and sinful world so that we might be sought and light in it. Jesus saved us. Not to draw us out of every sin-riddled sphere that we once occupied, but to send us back into it with a new purpose to introduce sinners to our newfound Savior. Matthew got that. He wanted his friends to meet his Savior, Jesus Christ. It reminds us of the disciple Philip's encounter in the book of John when he met Jesus. He immediately went and found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophet spoke. Jesus of Nazareth, come and see. It reminds us of the Samaritan woman when she met Jesus. The Bible tells us that this once shameful woman ran back into town and boldly told all the townspeople, come see a man who told me everything I'd ever done. Perhaps it reminds you of you when you first met Jesus. You were so full of zeal and fervor. You didn't know much, but you knew that Jesus had transformed your life and you couldn't keep it to yourself. You excitedly wanted other people to get to know him. Have you lost that? Have you lost that? 
Well, who's changed? Jesus or you? Saints, pray. Pray today. Pray now that God would restore the joy of your salvation, that he'd return you to your first love. Matthew invites his friends to meet Jesus, and they jumped at the invitation. Verse 11 tells us that many tax collectors and sinners came. Does does that surprise you? That so many sinful people wanted to spend time with Jesus? That Jesus attracted so many sinners? That surprises me. I mean, in our day, Christians don't have the best of reputations with non-Christians. Not many unbelievers are jumping at the chance to spend time with us. Now, some of that is surely due to their own blindness and hardness of heart. The scriptures tell us that men love darkness rather than the light. But I wonder if there's something else. I wonder if there's something about the way Jesus related to people, showing genuine love and concern for them that you and I sometimes lack. I wonder if people can sometimes detect that there are times when we often only care about quick conversions, spewing out a few words from the Bible to end conversations rather than to deepen them. I wonder if as Christians, we too often treat people as projects and nobody likes to be worked on. I think Jesus teaches us here two things that are necessary in reaching sinners. Close proximity and time. Jesus draws near to sinful people and he spends time with them. Here he does it in the context of sharing a meal with them, which is just incredibly practical and replicable. You don't need to add another event to your schedule. Are you planning to eat dinner tonight? Then ask a friend to join you. Invite a neighbor. Tell a coworker tomorrow to come to coffee that you're already going to hit up $10, $15 at Starbucks anyway. Let other people see how you live and how you talk in normal, everyday life. Don't hide Christ from them. Let them see how Christ impacts your home, how Christ impacts your work, how Christ impacts your encounters, even with bad servers and waitresses at restaurants. I feel convicted because I just ate and I did. I had a bad, I had a funky attitude. So was my waitress. My heart is already... See, I'm still following Jesus, too. More important than, than the kind of strict formality of a thing, whether your house is nice enough, if you've got enough seats, right, whether everything is kind of perfect and pristine, more important than the function, uh, the, the formality is the function. Opening up your lives to let sinners in. That's what Jesus did. So you and I are called to do as his followers. Maybe you're thinking, look, I've got so many hours and so many days. I'm trying to prioritize relationships in the church. I'm trying to be a good dad, spend time with my kids, a good mom. I'm cooking, I'm cleaning, I'm doing all these other things, and I got a spouse to care for, right? How am I supposed to add to that? Well, here's a little biblical advice. Don't segregate, integrate. You notice that here in verse 10? You've got Matthew at the dinner table learning something. And you got these tax collectors and sinners at the dinner table learning something. And you notice who else is there? 
Jesus' disciples learning something. Don't think you need a night for Christians and a night for non-Christians and then a separate family night. No, bring brothers and sisters from the church around the same dinner table with unbelievers and people in your neighborhood. Around the same grill, invite them to the same functions. Ask them to come play ball with you, to go for a walk or a run, and let your kids hang around too. Don't underestimate how much discipleship happens simply by observation. A dinner table, a flexible schedule, and a willing heart can be wonderful evangelistic and discipling tools. If you want to know more about that, a good book to read would be Rosaria Butterfield's The, the Gospel Comes with a House Key. It's a good resource on how to use all of life to invite people in to see and to share Jesus. But you know, Jesus' kindness to sinners, his prioritizing time with them is sadly the very thing that earns the criticism from the supposed righteous people. We see in verse 11 the, the Pharisees' criticism of Jesus for defiling himself by being in such close proximity with sinners. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners, they ask his disciples. You see how different the, the Pharisees' attitude towards sinful people is from Jesus's? They see sinners and stay away. Jesus sees sinners and draws close. But why do the Pharisees assume it's wrong for Jesus to eat with tax collectors and sinners? Well, in the ancient world, to eat with someone was a sign of identification. And any respectable Jewish teacher would never share a meal with such people, let alone to do so in the unclean house of a tax collector. That is, if he's holy. The Pharisees charged Jesus with wrong here, not being so righteous after all. Now, I think it's a helpful exercise to stop here and consider who is it that you most identify with? Jesus or the Pharisees? Are you more like Jesus who engages with despised sinners or like the Pharisees standing on the sidelines, casting labels and lobbying accusations against Christians whose ministry looks different from yours, different from what you think ministry is supposed to look like? I think we learn here that ministry is messy. It's going to involve you engaging with people and in situations that other people, religious people even, don't like. And it's going to earn you some backlash from folks accusing you of wrong for trying to do right. I mean, if Jesus was on earth today, I have no doubt that he'd be labeled by some as a radical left-leaning social Marxist, and by others as an ultra-conservative right-wing nutjob. Now, neither would be true. But Jesus was interested in helping people, all kinds of people who had real need, and he spent time with them. Jesus was not ashamed of spending time with sinners, even if it garnered hateful labels from his critics. He knew what his purpose was, even if the supposed pious people didn't. Saints, if, 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 if you're going to be a people focused on doing good, gospel-centered, word and deed ministry, 
then you're going to have to grow into a maturity that aims to please God and not to appease critics. Let labels fly where they may and accusations come as they will. And when people ask, what are you doing? Tell them, I'm trying to follow Jesus. The Pharisees failed to understand that Jesus' close encounters with sinners didn't stain him. They cleansed them. He was there not to encourage them in their sin, but to call them from it. He came near to tax collectors and sinners to call them to do what he had just called Matthew to do, to follow me. The Pharisees thought that to be holy was to be distant from sinners. Jesus showed that to be holy was to be both devoted to God and to dine with sinners. In fact, the two weren't mutually exclusive. To be devoted to God was shown by desiring the good of those who were separated from him. The Pharisees needed to learn that. And Jesus was about to teach them. Which leads to the fourth and final part of Jesus' discipleship plan. Number four, Jesus promotes theological education. Jesus promotes theological education. Let's look back at verses 12 and 13. But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. We see two rebukes here. One in verse 12 and the other in verse 13. The one here in verse 12 is the more veiled of the two. Obviously, the, the way the Pharisees were thinking, they saw themselves as healthy. And these tax collectors, these sinners as the sick, as the unclean ones. Oh, okay, fine, Jesus says. Let's both agree that they are sick and let's assume that you are healthy. Well, then, why aren't you helping the sick? You see them in need. Why aren't you doing something about it? No doctor worth their weight could just sit on the side and watch people suffer. Yet these Pharisees, who claim to be clean, refuse to get their hands dirty to help people. And at the same time, criticized Jesus for doing so. Why? Because they cared more about themselves than they did for others which just revealed how incredibly sick and unclean they themselves actually were. Which leads Jesus to, to his more pointed rebuke in verse 13. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Now, that's a pretty open slap in the face to the Pharisees, to the people who were the spiritual leaders of the day, whose job was to teach the Torah the law, and to apply it to everyday life, to tell these teachers, go back and learn what the Bible says. It's ironic, isn't it? Up in verse 12, the, the Pharisees distance themselves from Jesus as much as they can as they talk to his disciples. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Well, here, Jesus identifies himself as the Pharisees' teacher as well teaching them what a life that truly honors God looks like. 
a life of mercy. And he sends them to Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, to make the point, which they probably knew well. I mean, they likely would have finished the rest of the sentence as Jesus started quoting it. I desire yeah, 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 mercy and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. We know that verse too, Jesus. We've been to Jewish seminary and you haven't. But Jesus wasn't criticizing them for not knowing what the verse said. He was criticizing them for not knowing what it meant. Friends, knowing the Bible, but not living by it does us no good. Hearing the word on Sundays is great, but not doing what the word instructs Monday through Saturday is horrible. It condemns us. And now it's interesting that Jesus would pick Hosea here to quote. The entire book is basically a rebuke against the Israelites for their unfaithfulness. They'd forsaken God's covenant by worshiping idols and serving other gods. They'd broken the first and greatest command to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength. They instead offered him divided love, still offering sacrifices to him, still keeping the appointed feast, while at the same time worshiping pieces of wood. It's like an unfaithful husband buying his wife gifts each week as if they, that makes up for his infidelity. The Pharisees would look back on Israel in Hosea's day and say, we're nothing like them. We've never defiled ourselves with other gods. We've kept ourselves clean from anything impure. To which Jesus says, you're just like them. And here's why. You think that external acts of religion can cancel out acts of rebellion. And how are they acting rebellious? In their lack of love and compassion towards outcasts like Matthew. They misunderstood the law to be about ritual rather than relationship. A right relationship with God and a right relationship with those created in God's image. They kept the fine details of the law, tithing mint and dill and cumin, but they neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and forgiveness and faithfulness. They thought they were keeping the first half of the law, loving the Lord with all their heart, but by failing to keep the second half, Loving their neighbor as themselves, they prove to be keeping neither side. Go back and learn, Jesus says, what the law actually means. And then come back and look. Look at me fulfilling the law. Doing what you and Israel and every other, every other person has failed to do. Loving God perfectly and loving people perfectly as well. And how was that demonstrated? By his coming. Coming to call sinners. Wicked sinners like Matthew. Wicked sinners like the Pharisees. Wicked sinners like us to do one thing. To follow me. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, which instructs us. We pray that your word would challenge us, Lord, 
to forsake sin and to cling to you. Lord, we pray that we would learn from the Lord Jesus. Uh, Lord, help us to walk in his ways, uh, to love you more faithfully, and to love other people created in your image faithfully, and to call them, Lord, to come with us to follow you. We pray all this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.